0: You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. We are in our series on the Apostles' Creed where we are talking about the different statements of faith within this particular creed why we believe what we believe and this basically outlines gives us the cliff notes version of what we believe as Christians so today we're moving on in that series and covering from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead let's talk about judgment day And no, I'm not talking about the second movie and the six Terminator movies. I'm talking about Judgment Day as is given to us and written to us, taught to us in God's word. But the fact that if I say those words and we have a thought about futuristic cyborgs in an apocalyptic world bent on the destruction of all of humanity says a little bit about our understanding or thoughts concerning a biblically assured event like Judgment Day. We have all kinds of thoughts. Honestly, uh, I, I guess the question will be what comes to your mind when you hear those two words, judgment day? For me, as a young boy, I remember thinking about this and being taught about this, and, and my mind kind of had this idea of me sitting up in the clouds, kind of like Chevy Chase set up in the attic in Christmas Vacation, watching real to reel movies of his family's past. So me watching this real to reel movie of, of my life playing just kind of me and God there, eating popcorn or something. Now move fast forward a little bit, technology gets a little bit better and and then I kinda have this thought of just me sitting in the clouds with God and all of the angels and all of humanity watching this holographic replay of my life from my first breath to my last breath and that's horrifying. I mean, I hope all of us would like, man, that, I, that's not something that I would want to have happen, that everybody's just sitting there watching every second and every action of my life. But the reality is, even though that's uh, some erroneous ideas of how that day would go down possibly or will go down, it's probably tame and maybe even more realistic than a lot of thoughts that a lot of people have about judgment day. Even in the church, we can be off and teach off, if you will, from God's word as to what it's going to look like. And in the church, the subject of Christ's return, that he's coming back and that he's going to judge. The judgment day is something we're more embarrassed about than excited about. And why is that? That's not how it's always been. And it's really not how it should be. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament church, the hope of Christ's return was a subject of the new testament christians they were thrilled to talk about it as is evidenced by the fact that on average one of every 13 verses mentions this reality that christ is coming again and and we cannot wait for his return so why is it not a subject that we're excited about today we're more embarrassed than excited why well i think legitimately some of the reason is is we don't do a good job teaching about it and having a correct biblical approach to it some of it is the fact that we get sheepish about it or embarrassed about it, because despite the fact that we don't know when Jesus will return or exactly how he' will return, it doesn't stop people from continuously to erroneously prophesy and prognosticate when He is. like we 're going to talk about it like well, Jesus says we don't need to worry about it, and yet, no, we're going to talk about it, we're going to prophesy about it, and and others have preached and been very assertive about it, so much so that they've written books about it, right? 88 reasons Christ is going to return in 1988. And yet, here we still are. It's a real book. You can go look it up. The author is like, this is the day, this is the week, and then it was like, it passes. well, it's going to happen just a little bit later in the year, and... And no, but you can still get the book if you like, 88 Reasons Why but jesus himself said this even though ministries kind of are built and and financed on reading the signs of the end times and and this is what acts 1 7 said he said to them it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority and this makes sense like look you're you're not going to know everything that the father knows you're not going to know everything that god knows you're not supposed to know everything that god knows you're not god It makes sense, and you know as well as I do, if you knew the exact day that Christ was going to return, there'd be some real temptation for you to do some things really jacked up. Like, he's coming back this day, so you'd take the prophet Prince's advice and party like it's 1999, party over with out of time right this is what we're going to do because we know it's going to happen this day so let's get in all that we can i know this i know that christ is coming back on this date this day at this hour so i'm going to get my partying in while i can our priorities would be messed up with that knowledge why because it's not knowledge that we are supposed to be able to have as a matter of fact when jesus or when god placed adam and eve in the garden there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil There's some good knowledge that you cannot handle. There's some good knowledge that we cannot handle. We could not deal with it. We wouldn't be able to react properly to it, and yet we are insatiable as human beings with knowledge. We think if we could just know a little bit more about him, know a little bit more about her, know a little bit more about this situation, then it would fix everything, and it wouldn't. We'll just want to know more. But the thing we should want to know the most about is God. God in his word have a relationship with him because the know you more the more you know him the more you love him but here we are biblically speaking we look at this and go okay we're not supposed to know and yet we think we should know and we look at God's word we see what God teaches and here's what we do understand we should live like Christ is returning tomorrow and the only way that we're going to do that is by not knowing for sure if it is tomorrow follow follow Let me give it to you this way. Any procrastinators in here? Any procrastinators in here? You don't have to raise your hand. You can just wait and answer till later. (laughs) All of you know exactly what I'm talking about when we're talking about not knowing when the day of Christ's return will be. For example, if you know at the beginning of the semester you're given a syllabus, right, and you know... Six months from now, when that exam is going to be, do you start that day being a student and studying each day leading up for those next six months to be properly prepared for that exam that you know is coming on this day? Heck no, you don't. Except for Carla. She does. Maybe some of you other studious people. I don't. I don't wait. I wait till the week before. I wait till the night before, and that's when I study. I procrastinate. And this is the reality. If we knew when Christ was coming, we would put things off that we shouldn't be putting off. We try to do things that we should never do. It just wouldn't work. Jesus said in Mark 13, 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And yet, somehow we think we're going to figure it out that we should know. Yet another reason we don't think about Christ's return is because we're caught up in our own lives in this world. We've just got so much going on, so many good things going on, that we're just just not really thinking about that. We're worldly. That's how the Bible describes us. It says, if you're worldly-minded, is another way of saying it, then it means that we're intent- Our minds are intent on worldly things. We're devoted to stuff in this world over our devotion to Jesus. And some of those things are not bad things. Some of those things are very good things. As a matter of fact, they're probably blessings from God that he's given to us. Because any good thing that we do have, the scripture says, comes from him in the first place. So So they're good things. But any good things that's idolized as the greatest thing can very quickly become a very bad thing. This describes how our minds are not fixed on things above as Colossians 3.2 tells us to do. They're fixed on things here below with the worries of this world, with the cares of this world that that Jesus said would even choke out our faith. And they're also just satisfied. I can only speak to what I know, but I'd say this is primarily a problem for prosperous Christians, particularly in the West, because it's difficult to think about better things that are yet to come in Christ when I'm absorbed and satisfied with all the good things that I have right now. Listen, here's what Christ wants us to know, that this is not our best life now. If this is our best life now, then eternity is not going to be a good thing for you. My best life is with Christ in heaven that's what i'm looking forward to that's gonna be listen if that's not something to look forward to if it doesn't get better than this right now and and i have a great life and i have a great family and we have an amazing church and god has blessed us richly in so many ways but if i look around the world and as i deal with my own emotions and i deal with my aging body and i deal with death of people that i care about and love and i look at the news and i see all the things that are going on if this is as good as it is then take me now there's something greater. There's something more, Christ says in his return. Think about what C.S. Lewis himself said. Because we become so absorbed and satisfied with all the good things that we have, we become satisfied exiles because that's what we are as Christians. We're exiles who shouldn't be satisfied because this isn't our final home. No exile is satisfied where they are. They want to, what, get home There is a hope and a future, the Bible tells us, in Christ that we cannot properly imagine, that we cannot wrap our finite minds around, we can't grasp the infinite joys and pleasures of heaven and eternity because if we could, our lives, the Bible says, would look very different when we get a glimpse of what heaven is like, when we look forward to the joy of our salvation and being with God in heaven forever, we would live more as ever exiles who are progressing towards a greater home while anticipating a greater future. Thus far in our series of the Apostles' Creed, we've unpacked each section of the Creed in order to help us better understand, as I said, what we believe and why we believe it. Today's portion of the Creed closes out the part of the Creed that deals with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Up to this point in the Creed, we've talked about what He's done in the past, his His birth, His crucifixion, His death, His burial, His Resurrection and Ascension. We've affirmed that we believe that about Him. Last week we talked about the present ministry of jesus christ and what does that mean that he is now scripture says interceding on your behalf right now presently now we're also talking today looking towards the future covering his future ministry in the future tense of the creed what is he going to do this is what it says he shall come to judge the living and the dead he's going to do that i don't know exactly what it'll look like when it exactly will happen But I do know that the Bible assures me that Jesus will return. We talked about Acts 1 last week and the two angels, the two men dressed in white saying, listen, this Jesus who was taken up from heaven is going to come back the same way that he left. He's coming back. Or what about 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children right now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What does this say? Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes again, we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he truly is glorified and that should excite us that should excite us This should be such a glorious reality to look forward to. The consummation of the bride, the church, that's who we are, with the groom, Jesus, that's who he is, as we come together in the final moment of Christ's return, and Jesus makes everything right. It's not something to avoid as long as possible. It's something to long for. But listen, I've been there. I remember 19... 87, I was uh, starting my senior year of high school at that time, and and there was a lot of talk about Christ's return. Remember, 88 Reasons, Jesus is coming back in 1988. So I was like, man, like, really? Now? But there was also a lot of talk about him coming back in the early 80s, in the late 70s, right? 1980, it was like he was coming back in 1980, and I was terrified about it. That's a 10-year-old, and you know, I've, I've told this story a lot here, but some of you are new, and so you probably never heard it, and if you did, I like to tell stories, and the older I get, you're going to hear all my stories probably 85,000 times if you stay around here long enough, but the truth of the matter is I was so terrified that I would come home and, and if, if people weren't there, like my family, I would get afraid that the rapture had happen and that I'd been left behind, you know, and so we didn't have cell phones, like I couldn't call and text everybody, we had phones that were attached to the wall right and so we had to go to that phone that was attached to a wall with a cord and then what I would do my plan was when my sister wasn't around and my parents weren't there and I didn't know where anybody was I would call my grandparents and if and if they answered the phone then I knew that Christ had not returned because they were Christians and and I was still good and mom and dad were just off somewhere and I didn't know where it was they'd come back sooner or later but there was that one day where nobody was there sister wasn't there my mom wasn't there my dad wasn't there I called my grandmother, she didn't answer. I called my other grandmother, she didn't answer. My pop-pop, they they didn't, nobody answered. I freaked out, I ran outside, I started screaming. I was crying, I've been left, I've been left behind. No, God, no. And then all of a sudden my dad runs out from the neighbor's backyard or wherever. and It was just like, oh, I feel really embarrassed right now. But I'll be dog if I'm not about to get saved because I'm tired of this crap. I'm tired of coming home being afraid every day. And this is the reality of of that time, if you will, at least for me in my mind. But a little later on, and I'm a a senior in high school, and and Christ is supposed to return. And and if I'm honest, I'm dreading that. I don't want that to happen. I want to graduate. I want to go to college. I want to get married, God. I want to do married people things. I mean, let's. Let's be on Christ's imminent turn, Imminent return was something that I was put off for a little while so I could do these things down here that I think are the greatest things ever. But what if you approached your wedding day that way? Now listen to me. A little premarital advice. To give context, if you know of a future bride and groom that are not excited about their approaching wedding day but dreading it and thinking about all the things they need to get done before it happens, then just go ahead and save them a lot of headaches and heartaches and tell them to call it off, okay? because the truth of the matter is I was so excited to get married to Carla. Now we were engaged for 12 months which was stupid but I was so excited to get married to her. I couldn't wait and we were thinking about it and preparing for it and getting ready for it and here's the truth. Jesus is coming back again for his bride, the church and we should anticipate his return with great hope and joy and excitement. We should yearn for what a bride and groom yearned for, for the consummation of our salvation now I hope I don't have to go into all of that and what that means right now but you can explain it later on to the younger people in the crowd parents check out Hebrews nine twenty-seven through 28 and just as, as it is appointed I didn't say that right in the first service I didn't say it right in this service as it is Y'all try to say that with me, as it is. Okay, good, y'all are better than me. And just as it is, appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This passage of Scripture tells us exactly why Jesus came the first time, as well as his purpose for coming the second time, because he's coming back again. His first coming, the scripture says there, is to bear the sins of many. In accordance with the prophecies in Isaiah and other messianic scriptures in the Old Testament, in accordance with God's redemptive plan to make everything right through his son's sacrifice, here's what happened. Jesus came the first time, took our iniquities, our sin, our punishment upon himself. But that wasn't the end. Thank God that wasn't the end. This is not the whole story. This passage of scripture goes ahead and affirms that Christ is going to come back a second time. And when he does this time, he's not going to be concerned with sin at all. He's already dealt with that. In other words, sin was dealt with with complete finality when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished. He meant it. So the second time that he comes, he's not coming to deal with sin. Scripture says he's coming to what? Bring salvation. Now, wait a minute now. I I thought... I was already saved, I gave my life to Jesus, and and that, that he already brought salvation. Well, in one sense, yes. Salvation was brought by Christ's death, bought by Christ's blood, and there's a, in another sense, in which it will be brought to its consummation when Christ returns to what? Put everything like it's supposed to be. To reference last week, in the spiritual chess battle that is going on right now, the check has been in perpetuity, in place, through the redeemed, through the church, as we keep the enemy in check, through the resurrection power that lives inside of us, through Jesus Christ. But then Jesus is coming back. That's the final move, if you will, to consummate the checkmate in fulfillment of every promise for every human yearning that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian because you believed in Christ's first appearance as the Savior of the world and the forgiver of sin, then our lives should look different and we should view Christ's return differently. We don't dread it. We don't ignore it. We don't fear it. We don't try to get in everything that we can get in before God wraps this whole thing up and gives us a new heaven and a new earth. No. I'll give you another analogy back to the marriage thing. See, we have this thing that we do with our marriages, right? We're about to get married. We've been preparing. We've been planning. We're about to say till death do us part, I'm going to be with you forever. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you We're mutually gonna submit to one another under Christ's headship. But before we do that, let's have a bachelor party. Let's have a bachelorette party and let's get in all the things that we need to do now that we're not gonna be allowed to do then. What? That's my point, that's why you don't, and I don't need to know when Christ is gonna return because we'd be treating life like a bachelor party. And that's not how you prepare for your wedding. That's not how you prepare. That's not how you spend your last night before you make a commitment before God and another person. That's not how we spend our lives as Christians before we have the consummation of our salvation with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As a matter of fact, the scripture talks about what will he find us doing? First Peter, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if Christ had returned when I was at my son's bachelor party, he'd have found us drinking lots of coffee. Yes, getting a tattoo. <laughs> that too. Uh, he'd have found us doing some things together as brothers enjoying one another's company what will he find us doing the revelation of jesus christ refers to what the creed states when he shall come that's what it says when the revelation of jesus christ happens what is that when christ returns not if he returns when he returns and yes we are currently walking in grace the empowerment what's the grace that we're walking in now the empowerment to not go on sinning like jesus didn't come the first time But this grace is the consummation of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And our lives should look different as we live with this anticipation. God's grace covers every moment of our life from our first breath to our last. His grace is what draws us. We are saved by grace through faith. His grace is what empowers us to live like he died for us. And his grace is what's going to be consummated when our salvation is made complete when Christ returns for the second time. So it really isn't our concern exactly when or exactly how this will happen. Just that when it does that we are ready. That's the ultimate question. Are you ready to stand before Jesus when he comes to judge the living and the dead? And that's what he's coming to do. Christ is coming again. And the time that he comes this time, it's not as a baby It's as a judge, Matthew 25. Verse 31 through 34 When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You skip down to verse 40, 41, and it further explains. Then Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, the first time Jesus came, it was as Savior, it was as Redeemer the creed already affirms that we've affirmed that in the creed that he came in humility as a baby but the second coming is going to be a whole lot different he will come as the crucified resurrected ascended lord he will come as the one before who every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is lord the one who rode in on a donkey the first time to emphasize peace and humility is now coming on a white horse symbolizing a conquering king the one who was unrighteously judged by humanity will now come to righteously judge every single human being the one who was judged will now be the judge Jesus is the agent of this judgment according to the Bible this is part of God's vindication actually of his son who was the object of supreme injustice the first time that he came in humility growing up As a lot of you know, I used to sing and sing with my mom and my sister, and my mom used to always sing this song that was very popular at that time by the Gaithers called, The King is Coming. Anybody ever heard The King is Coming before? Praise God, he's coming again. He's coming for me. There was a lot of songs like that at that time. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. That was another one. Just a lot of king songs. He's coming back. He's going to return. That's why I was so terrified as a 10-year-old, right? (laughs) He's coming back. Mom's singing about it. Everybody's talking about it. That's all. The reality was it was on our minds, But again, in case we may have overlooked it or missed it, the images of this king that is coming are far different than the humble baby king that came and showed up the first time. The king that's coming this time is now coming with vengeance against his enemies. Here again, we get two highly ineffective and problematic views of Christ's second return. One being like this super sanitized view of Jesus the giant care bear returning to snuggle with everybody. Like he's coming back and he's just gonna snuggle everybody on into heaven. It doesn't matter what you did. And what, it just everybody's gonna get in no matter what. The other is like this hyper extremist fanatic shooting fire out of his eyes person sentencing all who are unsaved to this everlasting torment and doing so with sinister pleasure. Neither is correct. Both are far from the character and the motivation of a holy, loving God. The king is coming back. But he's coming back to claim his church, the bride. He's coming back to bring blessing and he's coming back to bring final consolation to his chosen people as 1 Peter calls those who've been called according to his purposes who've given their life to Jesus. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who've been called to show forth the praises of God in the earth. He's coming to rescue those his own from this evil age and he's coming to execute judgment on every single person. Listen, unless you are living under a rock you realize that we are living in a very evil age it doesn't take very long to wake up in the morning and scroll through your feeds to see all the things that have happened like this past week and a mass shooting over here or this morning another mass shooting now in Miami and all the things that are happening in India and all over the world there is evil around us and God is coming back to rescue his own from this evil age because there is a better place He's coming to execute judgment. And we can minimize and we can try to erase hell. We can ignore the eternal gravity of this truth and buy into universalism which says, we all get into heaven with the holy care bear, and in the end, doesn't matter what you did, but you could just get there. And scripture says, that's just not true. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's the good news. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Son or the only Son of God. Also, to erase hell or to give a universal hall pass into heaven is not just, it's not righteous. What kind of God would not make all things right? What kind of God would, would come back and not make all of the injustices that we have seen throughout all of human history, all of the evil, all of the murder, all of the mayhem that has gone on in this world, and not make those things right and, and vindicate and execute judge, judgment? That's not justice, and it's not a God that I'd want to serve. Let's talk about Justice. And I know that could be a trigger word in our context today, but let's talk about what what this means. Mainly because wherever there is a system or a judgment by humans, it's never complete. Human justice has always been and will always be imperfect and limited. Even if the justice system in our different areas of the world, in our own nation, even if it worked properly and the punishment fit the crime, so to speak, humans cannot make things truly right. Because judgment in Christ, justice through Christ, brings restoration, it brings healing, it brings wholeness, and it's coupled with righteousness, Perfect judgment brings with it the power to establish righteousness and justice. For example, perfect judgment would not just punish the wrongdoer, it would give life back to the murdered and give hope back to the hopeless. That's why you'll often hear people say, even today, after a verdict is given, and maybe someone lost their life that they cared about, and maybe justice, quote-unquote, was served in our human system. Well, this is what they might say. It gives us a little bit of peace. It gives us a little bit of closure, but it doesn't bring the person back. Only perfect justice can do that. All creation is longing for this kind of justice where all things will be made right. Every time we see injustice, every single moment of pain, every single moment of abuse and death and sickness and all of the things that we can see it is just crying out for true righteous justice. The righteous judgment of Christ. And this is the hope that you have as a Christian, that Christ's second coming, when he comes to judge, that justice will be served, perfect judgment will be made. And here's the thing, it will be so perfect, and it will be so righteous, that everyone receiving that judgment will agree with the verdict. Everyone. There'll be no argument. There'll be no appeal to a higher court. Because the defender has defended those that are his. The accusations are not true. We stand before God. We stand before Jesus, the righteous judge, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The judgment, here's what happens. The sinful offender will receive what they are owed and the offended son of God will receive the glory that's due him. The judgment affirms the wrath of God, which we cannot be afraid to speak of because it's only against the backdrop of God's wrath do we truly see the amazingness of God's infinite, perfect love. Remember, the wrath of God is not him losing his temper. It's God's righteous response to a rebellion of a sinful people against a holy God. Romans 14 11 explains, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is why faith in Jesus Christ is so important, because without faith in Jesus, we would all rightfully receive the punishment that we deserve for our sin. For those who belong to Jesus, though, he has taken the punishment of our death, the death that we deserved. The pouring out of God's wrath that was warranted to us and not him, he's taken all of that upon himself. But for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, refusing to bow our knee now to him as Lord, when Jesus returns, they will receive the judgment their decision demanded. Think about giving an account for every single thing in your life that you've done. And I know, even as I speak of myself, there's no amount of good that I could ever do to outweigh the bad. When it comes to judgment, there's no balancing of the scales of justice because anything in my life would tip it always against me. But what Christ did... When justice is going to be served, and it will, the sin accounted for by everyone, what Christ did, this is why the gospel is such good news, yet again, if you've given your life to Jesus, there's nothing to fear standing before the righteous judge there's nothing to fear because the word says now you've been declared innocent because you stand in the righteousness of Christ not on your own merits not on your own accomplishments but by his finished work on the cross he took our sins and he nailed them to the cross paying our debt in full I love how the passage in Colossians 2 says it and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands but our defender our advocate our savior Jesus he set this aside nailing it to the cross paid in full the only means of acquittal or salvation is the loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our defender and righteous judge. And at the same time, I want you to hear this, because this is kind of the erroneous perspective that we often have about Christ and hell and judgment. Christ takes zero pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, none. Why do I know this? Romans 5, 8 explains it when it says, but God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, at enmity with God, wicked, Christ died for us. John 3, 16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I believe Matthew 25, which we read a moment ago, says that hell was created for Satan and his angels before we were ever created. It's not a place that God intends for us to be. And the gospel says that we don't have to be. Second Peter 3:8, although highly debated for reasons I don't have to co- time to cover, offers some clarity as well, I believe. that the Lord's not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness? Or one translation says, one of my favorites, "The Lord is not slack to fulfill His promises, some count slackness." but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. No matter what you think all means here, there is much encouragement to you, the body of Christ, to you, the church, and to those that God is still calling to himself, mainly as it relates to our current mission, church. This is how it relates to you and I. That God's delay in returning is because of his grace. Not because he doesn't know how to get back here. God is patient, the scripture says. He's long suffering. Why? Because God's love towards the human race is so wonderful that he wants all to be saved. And he's prepared to give salvation to any who would call on his name. And I believe patient towards you is addressed to humankind, and not wanting is used as the will of his desire. It's not his desire that any should perish regardless of the nuances of this passage our current activities today as the church should be greatly influenced by the fact that we know Christ is returning and we know what he's going to do when he does and so if we're going to be like Christ and just like Jesus there is no one whom we would wish the horrors of hell upon not even our worst enemy so instead of minimizing or erasing hell instead of selfishly keeping the good news to myself, instead of numbing myself with the good things here and forgetting about the fact that there is a day coming where Christ will return and judge the living and the dead, then I am telling you when we affirm this, Christ's return begs that we must proclaim the gospel. We can put it this way, our understanding of the future should fuel our actions in the present. What do we understand that Christ is returning? What do we understand that he's gonna judge the living and the dead? His imminent return, his subsequent judgment is a call for us to be serious about the proclamation of the gospel, not just in the preaching of the word on Sunday, but in the proclamation of the gospel through our lives Monday through Saturday missions, evangelism, discipleship, all of those are fueled by the knowledge that Christ is returning. If not, then as Paul says, we should be pitied more than anybody on the planet, that we're doing all of this for nothing. But the Word says we're doing this for something great, the treasures in heaven that Christ has stored up for those who persevere and finish this race. So we ask God to give us his heart for the lost. We ask God to break our hearts over sin, over those that are dying, standing up, for his name we cry out to God to give us a burden to see people saved rather than judged we need faithful endurance to share the good news of what Christ has done until this life is over or Jesus returns whichever comes first the fact that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead tells us we're not going to have as I said our best life now but we should be living a life that points people to the best life that they're going to have, their hope that they can have in Christ. And those that are living their worst life now, the brokenness, the hurt, the pain, the heartache, need to know that there's something better, and that better is found in Christ. We live our lives now for the glory of God and the good of those around us. And whatever we do, we do so with confidence, knowing that our future in Jesus Christ is secure. Because He's coming again, we've been given the mandate to go again and again and again. That's the call on the church that truly believes Christ's returning, and He is. Let's pray.